Jim Crockett Promotions presents Ric Flair's Last Match. July 31st at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium. The weekend of StarCast 5, presented by CarShield. Bringing wrestling companies together for one of the most unique cards ever assembled. Main evented by Ric Flair's Last Match. On sale right now at RicFlair'sLastMatch.com. And you can catch the show live streaming on pay-per-view and Fight TV for only $34.99. Ric Flair's Last Match. Walk in that aisle one more time for the last time. StarCast 5 is presented by CarShield and also brought to you in part by ProWrestlingTees.com. T-shirts designed and sold by over 2,500 pro wrestlers. By Lenny Bakken, certified financial planner. By Powerbomb Pizza, pizza crafted and sold by pro wrestlers. Powerbomb Pizza, powered by Kitsch Data. And by Woolworth Theater, the home of Nashville's first-of-its-kind show, Shiners. Visit StarCast.com for more information. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. It made national headlines when it was announced that Ric Flair would be returning to the ring for one last match. And the story that unfolds leading up to that match will be told every Monday this month at 6.05 Eastern. We invite you to come along and witness the Nature Boy's path back to the ring for his last match. The behind-the-scenes discussions, the workouts, the promotion, the ups and downs, the blood, sweat, and tears, which will all culminate on Sunday, July 31st at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium when Ric Flair will step through those ropes and enter a JCP ring for one last match. Mondays, 605 Eastern, RicFlair'sLastMatch.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the hardcore legend, the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? I'm doing great, especially now that I see you have Fresca in your refrigerator. <laughs> uh, it's so refreshing. I didn't know you were a Fresca guy. Oh, I'll have time. that on hand every time for you now. And whenever I watch uh, Caddyshack and Ted Knight says, How about a Fresca? I think, that sounds so good. Not that I watch Caddyshack often, but when I do. It's a great line. It's a great line. How about a fresco? You know, another great line is Mr. In Your House. And uh, uh, can you believe we turned it into a shirt? Into a, a Mr. Shirt. In Your House shirt. You know what I feel bad for at this juncture in time? Stone Cold. Because all of a sudden that Austin 316. Second place. Second. Very much secondary. Yeah. And I know about secondary because I'm the number one name in secondary pay-per-views. And you've got the shirt to prove. i got the shirt. I think I was seriously thinking. Now, I believe I'm going to be cremated when the time comes. But this may be reason to rethink that just so I can have uh, that. that uh, <laughs> On a headstone? On a headstone. Here lies Mr. In Your House. With that logo. No one came through bigger when it mattered less. That's a, <laughs> is that not great? That's an epitaph for the ages. Yeah. Uh, no one came big, through bigger when it mattered less. I mean, we have to put that on a shirt All right. next time. Maybe the back of this Maybe shirt. Maybe the back of that one. Yeah. 
So, boy, we're starting off dark here. Uh, where are you going to have the ashes spread, or do you just want to be on a mantle somewhere? Well, I have not uh, I've not asked the people at Santa's Village how they would feel about uh, the Foley ashes being scattered. But that would, that would be one that would be a main contender. Maybe just uh, at three or four of the parks that meant a lot to me uh, when I was a child. Throw in a little Knoebel's Grove, because what it's meant to uh, my children and uh, I mean, we'll see if uh, Vince would let me uh, drop the Ashes in the ring before the main event of WrestleMania. I love that. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Forget leaving, you know, the Undertaker left his hat and gloves. Let's yeah. just leave me. Leave smash. Well, I think in keeping with the Mr. In Your House theme, it should be maybe fast. Backlash. <laughs> <laughs> Before the the third match. Maybe The Undertaker could climb to the top of the cell and throw you off one last time. That's right. I mean, we're all not. King of the Ring, one last time. Maybe there's there's some room there where we can investigate. I love it. Well, let's talk about something that I've really been excited about talking about because I don't think a lot of fans are familiar with this part of your career. We're going to be going back and talking about really what a lot of people refer to as like the birth of independent wrestling. Uh, long gone are the, are the traditional territory days. The AWA is really on its last leg. Yeah. It's down to the WWF versus WCW. But meanwhile, something in Philadelphia was growing. And when Jim Crockett Promotions is bought out by Ted Turner, became WCW, Vince McMahon essentially just ran everybody out of the game. And all that's left are a handful of these uh, promoters who are really super fans who want to try to put their hands on the wheel and the first name we're going to be talking about today is the guy who stood out above all the rest, Joel Goodhart. Joel Goodhart. Uh, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with that name. Tell us about Joel and how you came to be introduced to him. Well, I met Joel, I believe, uh, on a couple of occasions before uh, before Tri-State Wrestling. I think Joel did some appearances, fan club things. I know there was one day I, I couldn't make it to Philadelphia, Um uh, for uh, for an appearance, uh, travel or something of that nature. I came back, made up on the date. My wife was with me. I was wearing a green and blue striped sweater, and my wife just saw. Oh, she looked out of this world, and it was so. We I, I knew Joel even before he did tri-state wrestling, but when he opened it up, it was pretty much the precursor to ECW. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, it was really wild. Uh, Todd Gordon was one of Joel's financial people. He saw what Joel was doing. He liked it. You know, when Joel ran out of finances, and obviously ECW was different than Tri-State, uh, especially in that ECW, they you were they were bringing in top-name talent to um, to groom the the younger guys. To legitimize the younger guys, whereas Joel's tri-state, you know, they banked on those names bringing people in. They weren't necessarily there to bring up the uh, the younger guys. They not that they were there to squash them, but they were there to draw on their own. And how they uh, how they made money is beyond me because the talent budget had to have been astounding. You know, they were flying in ten, twelve guys, big names. Uh, and it w- became a destination. It became the place to go to if you were a big-time independent fan. Before we talk more about Joel, some of our listeners probably don't know the name Todd Gordon. 
sort of, in your perspective, who was Todd and, and what was his contribution? Well, Todd was the owner of uh, ECW. Uh, Eastern Todd, Championship Eastern Wrestling. Championship Wrestling before that fateful night uh, when the uh, um, things uh, changed. August 27th, 1994, Shane Douglas threw the belt down. That's right. I think after he did great some great damage to it, right? He tried to damage it in some well, way. Well, I think he just cut a promo about it, about how the NWA was dead. Yeah. And it no longer represented... This and this. This is a new era, and ECW became Extreme Championship Wrestling. But yeah. Todd Gordon was the original owner of that outfit, and right. I think he has. Uh, I mean, maybe this is the inappropriate term, but it's it's a jewelry store. But I think he does some pawn stuff. He'll buy sure, estate yeah. jewelry and things. It like It would that. be considered a really high end uh, pawn shop. Yeah. So, like you're saying, they're dealing with some really high high value pieces of, of jewelry. Uh, I'm sure they've got the guitars and things, uh, other things that. Uh, no, but it was really a uh, jewelry type stuff. Yeah, not lawnmowers and VCRs. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, either way, Joel is going to start running some shows in the Northeast, making a home base in Philadelphia. Uh, he's a guy who's drawing fourteen hundred to two thousand people, and in this era, boy, WCW is running some shows where there's two, three, four hundred fans. So yeah. that's getting everyone's attention. But he's bringing in guys like Larry Zabisco, taking on David San Martino, but David has Bruno in his corner. So that is a, a, clearly a, a big price tag. He's got Tully Blanchard versus Bam Bam Bigelow in a steel cage match. He's got Kerry Von Erich taking on Jerry Lawler for the USWA title. I mean, this is a pretty big-time opportunity. And, and you've actually worked a little bit in this era for the UWF and and your old pal there, Mr. Abrams. Oh, yeah. Um I think after Vice's Dark Side of the Ring, more people are familiar with him. But briefly describe who Mr. Abrams was and what a character he was. Herb Abrams was a he was a visionary. I don't think he got to follow through on that specific vision, but he was able to make people believe in his vision, which is that he was going to use some uh, of his Hollywood magic to uh, become uh, competition for WWE. And I was at the press conference when he talked about it. I was at the at the uh, John Arezzi Weekend of I don't think it was called the John Arezzi Weekend of Champions, the Weekend of Champions. The uh, first ever wrestling convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing like the, the names he brought in, including Flair. It was Flair, it was Sting, it was Bruno, it was Funk, me, and maybe one or two other people. You didn't need 100 names at that time. It wasn't WrestleCon. It was, you know, five super big names and then I you know I just had that little run with WCW I was honored to be part of that group but nobody had seen anything like that so they flocked out for that weekend uh it was it was a great event and it was there that I met her Herb Abrams uh again I ha- had my wife with me my wife who was my girlfriend then traveled all over the place with me before we had kids and um we both believed in him, you know. He asked me if I'd be interested in being part of this thing. He went up there. I think he led off with uh, uh, by praising me, led off his uh, his press conference by talking about uh, how Ole Anderson was nuts to let me get away. And uh, I didn't. I don't recall hearing that Blackjack Mulligan was going to be his booker because Mulligan was behind bars at that time. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I don't, and I don't. 
believe he said that Brody was going to work for him because that was a impossibility. Since he had passed away. Since he had passed away. But he did not come across like a guy who was out of his mind. He had uh, Spivey and B. Brian Blair as two of his biggest stars, and they got into a little something there, you know, which you kind of, you know, had to do to yeah. introduce a new product. And, uh, we, we, you know, we thought we were off to the races, and I thought that way until I showed up at the Reseda, no, I don't want to say Reseda Country Club, because that might be where uh, uh, Johnny Lawrence, uh, was that where Johnny Lawrence, <laughs> yeah, checking with my man Grillo are, over there. Are uh, you doing Karate Kid references? Uh, karate right Kid now? references. Okay. Was that the Reseda Country yeah. Club? All right, it was somewhere around there, but it was, it sounded, it felt to me like it, it had a posh name. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't strike me as the ideal place to be holding wrestling and we didn't know what herb was bringing to the table as far as being an announcer um i don't want to speak ill of those who are no longer with us he wasn't good conrad he was uh, he wasn't good a little over the top a little over the top and bruno you know you would probably he would probably would have been better served with a a real comedic mind next to him to kind of put him in his place. Right. Bruno was the ultimate straight man, and he brought a great credibility to the product. But it was a it was a stretch yeah. because you know her brought in Bruno, but her represented pretty much everything Bruno was against. Yeah, you know he was. He was he was ridiculously over the top. I know we don't want this. Whole, we could do a whole show on her, sure. but I mean his first his first merchandise out of the gate was a Mister Electricity Herb Abrams T shirt. Like not the guys, but the announcer. And then uh, for anyone who's watched, uh, I believe it's the Cocaine Cowboy edition of uh, <laughs> of uh, Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, he had cookies coming out. And uh, there was like a Paul Orndorff cookie and a Steve Doctor Death Williams cookie, and then coming soon, Herbie cookies. Like, yeah, that's what everybody wants. That's what everybody wants. So he was a character. He, you know, my wife got it right away that he was using some substances because she was, you know, five years older than me, had been around the clubs in New York, and she knew how to spot one when she saw one, and she was like, oh, "This guy's so coked out." Really? Like, I, I didn't know. I never tried. Never have to this day. You know, didn't know that much about it. But he was, uh, then the, the, Brian Blair had one of the great lines. He said, Herb Abrams died doing what he loved, hookers and cocaine. I, I think you had the best line. If, uh, if, if <laughs> well, Mr. Abrams was here today, what would he be doing? Time. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, I don't feel like we can talk about Joel without at least drawing some sort of a comparison, good or bad. I'm sure yeah. they're way different. But Joel Goodhart's trying to do maybe the same thing that, that Mr. Abrams was, but it feels like this at least had what we're going to talk about today with Goodhart had the respect of the hardcore fans. It really did. Yeah, yeah. Because Herb threw a lot of great names. I mean, that's where I originally met Andre the Giant. Was in Herb's uh, Herb's dressing room. What so a coup that was! He was bringing in huge names. Uh, I mean, his his uh, roster from top to bottom was really impressive. And then he wanted to push some, you know, some younger guys, which I was one of them. Uh, but you're right. He the product kind of pushed away the hardcore fans. Yeah. And this one welcomed them. Like, it's a great tent, you know, the wrestling fandom. And uh, we get all these little niches, and it's great that there's something for everyone. Don't like WWE product? Guess what? There's 
18 other things to choose from if you if you like. But they Joel put something for everyone out there. The same way that ECW did, even though they were known as the... Uh, Blood and Guts, Blood they and weren't Guts. really just that. Yeah, yeah, you could count on a great technical match and fans who would appreciate that. Uh, and Joel's was kind of the same, same way. They skewed a little bit heavy on the Blood and Guts, yes. especially on their big shows. Yeah. Not so much on the... Uh, not as much. It was still there on the on the house shows. But on their big shows, yeah, yeah, they, they, went, they went pretty heavy, and I was a part of that. So we know Todd's background being in the jewelry business, and we know Mr. Abrams was in the, um, well, plus-size ladies' wear yep. uh, business. And I'm a did, big girl now, I believe. That's there you a go. great name. Yeah. Great name. As uh, two plus-size men, we can appreciate I, I love that. it. Yeah. I'm for it. What was Joel's background? I don't really know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I just think it's interesting that we're all like, hey, what's going on here? Um I wanted to set the stage here. We're September of 1990. Eddie Gilbert's working an angle with Jerry Lawler in Memphis. Uh, and it's a pretty legendary angle. <laughs> Eddie hits Lawler with a car on live TV. And this became a tape trading legend. Like, you know, way back when you couldn't just reach in your pocket, pull out your phone and find any match in the world. There were these little underground trading communities. Sure. I was a part of that. I was too. Uh, but the idea that, wait a minute, somebody got hit by a car? I got to see this. It looked good too. Yeah. So what, what was your reaction seeing or hearing that? Uh, a good friend of mine, Brian Hildebrandt, who later um, refereed as Mark Curtis and was Jimmy Cornette's right-hand man in Smoky Mountain. He refereed and was a heck of a hand in the ring. He had a chance to... Uh, uh, do some wrestling with Randy Hales when uh, Memphis took on uh, Smoky Mountain. But Brian was like, he was like another teacher in the ring. He was a wrestling historian, loved the Memphis stuff. So Brian would have showed that to me, and I would have thought it was really cool. I would have been a little envious of his. I was going to say, that feels like you all day. To tell you the truth, I never had a chance to be run over by a car, but uh, I... <laughs> Sentence. I've never had the chance to be run over by a car. You know, I mean, we're right here on the parkway. We could make it happen, but it's not involved. I'm an older man now. Okay. I'm an older Good. man. Uh, but Jerry, man, I don't think people realize what a great worker agree. Jerry Lawler was and what a great bump taker Jerry was. By the time he got to WWF or WWE, you know, he was in his, he was in his middle, he was a middle-aged man by yes. that point. And still a heck of a worker, but he wasn't taking the same, the bumps, you know. There was Hulk one, Hogan never got hit by a car. Right. Hulk Hogan never was run over by a car, brother. Uh, but there's another great bump he took with Joss LaDuke, and I think he kept Lawler out for a while. Lawler, he rarely got injured. So he rare, but I have to have to believe he was banged up a lot of that time. This was just like a severe, I mean, it was such a severe contusion. That he couldn't walk. I believe that was it. If we have a clip of that, it was uh, LeDuc throwing uh, Lawler from the ring onto the announce table. And it didn't didn't conveniently break. This is I mean, not the Spanish announce yeah, table. Yeah, man, brother. This thing uh, was, was real solid. And Lawler hit it on the corner. I think it did a number on him. But he was out on the cutting edge of uh, bump taking. So, And he had a guy in Eddie who idolized him. Yeah who was a protege, but who also, I think, was always... I'm not saying he didn't have Jerry's respect. I'm just saying that that respect meant so much to Eddie. And uh, he loved working with Jerry. So when I first worked with Eddie, 
Eddie says, listen, I'm a heel, talking about himself. He wants to stay a heel. So it puts me in the rather new position of being a babyface. And I go out there for that first match, and I cut an awful promo. This is why I think it's important for people to look at this stuff and realize that it's a you're on a it's a, lear, it's a learning process. I'm so I'm ashamed to see it, but I'm glad it's there. I think I was wearing some uh, cornrows uh, for only one of two times in my life, um, and it was just it wasn't the promo was worse than the match. The match wasn't anything. It wasn't bad, but it was not uh, a harbinger of the stuff that Eddie and I would go on to do. Like, I hadn't found my comfort zone at all uh, in trying to be like a a babyface. And then, uh, you know, I was a babyface throughout the duration of our program, but I grew into it. And I learned during that time with Eddie to feel things. Instead of going out there and just doing them because they were supposed to be done, you know, to learn to feel it instead of just uh, concentrating on replicating it. All right, Mick, it's time. All of our listeners have been wondering when I was going to get you uh, smartened up about this. Are you familiar with Blue Chew? I've heard of it. Well, now you're going to learn all about it. This is like a hot tag for your wiener, Mick. <laughs> Okay. Are they going to use that in their... Yeah. Here's the deal, boys and girls. You know all about Blue Chew. Even Mick does. And, and Mick is is a podcast rookie here, right? But yeah. you know this episode sponsored by Blue Chew. You knew that as soon as you clicked play and you saw my name. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but it's chewable tablets, and Mick, you'll love this, at a fraction of the cost. Fraction of the cost, really? Now, I like that. Now, here's the real reason on that, Mick. They have they are basically offering like almost the generic version. So it's the same stuff if you use Viagra and Cialis, but now it's in chewable form, which means you can take it on an empty stomach. You can take it day or night. You can be ready whenever an opportunity arises, or maybe it's time for that elusive run-in. Oh, right? Uh, yeah, Just, that's boom. right. The Good hot to go. tag, come in, the house of fire. Yeah, working from underneath, going over. I mean, we can get it all in here. The process is simple, guys. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part, Mick. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And I know this is important to you, Mick. BlueChew's tablets are made right here in the USA. The good old red, white, and BlueChew. It's prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But, Mr. Foley, there won't be anything discreet about your package with Blue Chew. So, uh, boys and girls, check this out. If you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew for free. Can you beat that price, man? You can't beat it, but you got to have the disclaimer about side effects, right? Side effects include smacking the mat. Yes. Firing up into a fighting position and saying, come on, and rushing your hair. Come on, you son of a... Yeah. Come, come. And if you're not careful, an accidental eye poke. I mean, you never know. You just never know. Come on, boys and girls. Try this out for free. You can't beat free. All you got to do is use our promo code Foley at checkout. Now, you will have to pay $5 shipping, but why would you not do that? Why Come on would now. you not do it? It's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley. You receive your first month for free. Just visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring today's podcast. And apparently... 
Mrs. Foley's baby's boy's baby boy. I don't know, but you're going home with some today, and I'm going to need to report back. I am a scientist. Okay. Uh, I can almost assure you that you are going to become my wife's least favorite person. Really? <laughs> virtue of giving me. You're going to be pestering her all the time? Uh, possibly. Hey. Here's what's good about you in particular. Uh, you had three bites at the apple at the Royal Rumble. Yeah. I mean, I think. If I'm thinking what you're thinking and you're thinking what I'm thinking. I think thinking, I am thinking what I think you think I'm thinking. We start with, with Cactus Jack. Maybe we transition to Mankind. We finish with Dude Love or vice versa. Just switch it up. Just use promo code Foley at BlueChew.com. Did you learn a lot of that in Memphis? Well, in Memphis, you Memphis was a unique learning situation. I mean, I wrote about Memphis and how I did not enjoy it, but I, then I later went on to realize it was a great learning experience. You learned every day. Uh, the nature of the territory meant you had to be constantly changing up your matches because you were in the same venue every week. You were in uh, the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis every Monday. You were at the, I'm not calling it the Yum Yum Center, no matter what. It was the Louisville Gardens on Tuesday. Uh, Evansville at, they had an, an, a name for an arena, but it was a small venue on a Wednesday. And every Saturday night was, uh, was, was Nashville. TV, Memphis, Saturday morning, drive to Nashville, which was about a 200-mile drive. It's a good drive. It's a hike. So you put on a lot of miles. You didn't make much money. And it kind of, for me, at least, as a northerner, I was kind of ground down. Uh, wasn't. It was really valuable because uh, there were guys like Robert Fuller who did believe in me. And I remember specifically, all right, I like how this feels. Like uh, I'm not saying that all. There were just a few people who went out of their way to make life a little more difficult for me than it needed to be. And I remembered that as well. So it was a really valuable learning tool as far as how to treat people. But you don't it, have to give any names if you don't want to, but can you give an example? Well, uh, man. Well, I got, I got caught talking to a girl in a wheelchair who had muscular dystrophy. And, um, you and, you're know, a, and you're a heel? I'm a heel. And you're not supposed to be nice to people. Right. So my job was, uh, uh, was threatened. And this is, I mean, I wrote this about Randy Hales, and Randy and I have mended fences a long time, uh, a long time ago. Uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity he gave me. But uh, he had that talk with me about how many letters he got per day, and he sees one of his heels out there talking to a fan. And so uh, <laughs> the irony of the situation is that I did go on to be good friends. Uh, Terry DePriest was the young lady's name, and she passed away. And uh, 1991, and was one of my best friends by the time she passed away. So that family kind of took me in. I had Thanksgiving at their house wow. uh, in November of 1988. And Gary Young and I had just, I don't know if it was that week or within a few weeks, because we were gone shortly after Thanksgiving from the territory. And Gary and I, Gary, gorgeous Gary Young and I, won the tag team titles. So at that time, well, let me just give you her answer before I explain what the process was at that time. I stay over her house after the show on Wednesday night and uh, got the title belt. And I say, I bet you were surprised to see Gary and I win those titles. She goes, not really. I heard you won them the last night, two nights also. Because at that time, you would not just 
win it once, you would win the title in every town. In, in every town until that, TV. Uh, yeah, that they ran regularly, and then they wouldn't say which town you won it in. So each crowd thought that they, they, by the design was each crowd is supposed to believe they're seeing the title change. But the fans talk to each other even yeah. before the day of the era. And I did they, yeah, they won it last. So the idea of not smartening up the fans. They figure it out because you figure, did it. They figure it out quickly. And I think on the list of uh, offenses, you know, I would say that switching titles in four different cities is a more major offense than talking to a young lady in a in a wheelchair. I would agree. Yeah. So, but it, kayfabe was still in. You still wanted your bed. This is a talk Scandor Akbar had with me in uh, 1989 in world class that I was somebody somebody who was nicer to the fans than they wanted, especially in a place like world class where you're hitting that same venue, Sportatorium, every Friday night, every Saturday. you so got to be hateable. Yeah, they get to know you, and they, you know, they, and plus you can sense these things. So that was a knock on me that I was too nice to the fans, and there was something in what Randy was saying. But it's still, I think... Um, less uh, less of an offense, and now it's something that's completely understood and encouraged. Yes, you know if you're in WWE and you're in AEW, you know you take your time out of your day to you know to spend with somebody who's uh, who's been struggling their whole life. Unless but you're MJF, because you're just a despicable <laughs> human being. Seriously, a few years ago at StarCast, we saw him bless out a kid in a wheelchair. I know. And I was like, wow, okay. I see those things. I'm like, ah, oh, I under... I, it's... <sighs> the kid loved it. kid loved it. And I saw... He, he gets it. Uh, he gets it. But I'm not sure everyone gets it. No. There were people who were really offended all around. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't know if, if you're as talented as you are, you know, I... Look, the days when Abdullah the Butch, you know, I used to get a flight with Abdullah, and a flight attendant would come over and Abdullah get these eyes, you know, like he, he would and, do it to her too. He would do it, and uh, and she would go to check, and then the woman would just withdraw and walk away as quickly as she could. And Abby's idea was, you know, that's that's how you get over. You spread the word, you know, one by one, that person's going to talk to somebody else. So so I so in eighty, I got to world class in nineteen eighty eight. And uh, you'd have fans who would follow you up the uh, the aisle. You know, they would come out of their seats and follow you to the dressing room. So uh, auditorium is largely a, a building made out of corrugated tin. And so the tin would be up on the roof, the walls, everything. And so I knew if I headbutted the corrugated tin, I would put huge, you know, huge dents into it. But every six inches, you don't have the corrugated tin. You it's have hard. hard beams. And so probably four times out of five, I would succeed in putting a dent in the sportatorium. And well, one time out of five, I would, it would ring my bell. Uh, no doubt in my mind at the time that that was a ratio that was worth following up on because those people were going to go back to their fan, the other people there, and say, this guy just put a... He just put a huge dent in the thing, and that was just the way business was conducted. One by one, the word gets out. So I appreciate in some ways that he wants to be the consummate heel. I, I just, I'm just... Not capable. Uh, nah, you know, kid's 10 years old. I don't know if you need to say your dad should have worn a condom. Like, 
I don't know if that goes down well with everyone. I guess you could argue at this point you know what you're signing up for, but I don't know if everybody does. Right. So I just, and I like the guy. I've only met him on one occasion. He was he was great. I realized he had a world of talent. I thought what was going to hold him back was that I didn't know if he could assert himself as a tough guy. And he's certainly done that. So all those questions have been answered. And, uh, you know, when and when his contract comes up, I'm sure that he would be a major jewel in the crown and Mr. McMahon. And, of course, Tony Khan's going to try to he's keep him. He's getting big offers from everybody. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't – I don't think he needs that. I don't, I don't think he needs to write FU on a $400 title belt. Just, just, just me think it. But then again, I'm the guy who talked to a girl in a wheelchair yeah. in 1988. Well, so let's talk about Eddie Gilbert. Okay, yeah. Uh, you're with him in Memphis. You're, you know, you didn't love your Memphis experience, but I was not with Eddie in Memphis. Oh, you never had any no. time there with him. I didn't get to know. I got to know Eddie before that in '86. This is when um, uh, UWF, a little history lesson, for yeah. people out there, geography lesson. Um, Bill Watts's Mid South had just become UWF uh, because they recognized that they had a popularity way beyond their oil town hotbed, and that was really important because uh, that business, oil business, was undergoing a, a big slump, and attendance was dropping. He really needed the the business, you know, the oil business to be booming to make the best out of your wrestling company. So he had, I think, 120 syndicated stations and a great really exciting tv show that yeah. jim ross announced it was cutting edged it was um uh, um uh, st- great storytelling one led into another there's a word that episodic. Just, episodic there you go there you go i'm ashamed five-time new york times best-selling author and two of them hit number one and I couldn't come up with episodic. I was going with it with encyclopedic, but I knew it wasn't. <laughs> um, but he had I'll that. T- yeah, uh, he, yeah, his, but his show, the show, Bill Watts shows are really exciting. Oh yeah. And so in an attempt to branch out and test the waters of those, uh, of uh, those territories that, uh, that the show was reaching, but was not traditionally a mid South ter- area. They were branching out to Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. That was my, and sure, there were a lot of other uh, places they were reaching out to as well. But that was my experience, that we were doing some shows. And so uh, I think in November of 86, uh, uh, Eddie came over with Missy. Uh, Terry Taylor came over. Um, Buddy Jack Roberts came over. I think Chris Adams came uh, a couple months later, two or three months later, when we ran some other towns. But those were the first people we met. And to get this type of feedback from Eddie Gilbert, right? I think Eddie was like an assistant booker there at Mid-South. And to get the feedback uh, coming off the matches I was having with Shane, that we were guys that had a future, you know, to be taken under the wing of not only Eddie, but Buddy Roberts. That was a big yeah. deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a big deal. Um, and that was, it was really, to get that kind of feedback. Danucci wasn't a big back patter, right? Uh, and uh, he wasn't a guy who gave compliments lightly. Uh, but when uh, Shane and I came back from our first match, he did, Dominic would have us on first to set the tone. And he said, these guys can go anywhere in the world with that match. And that was a big compliment. Yeah. And so we really started believing that we had what it took to 
be somebody. If we were good enough to wrestle in, in Mid-South, which Shane, or UWF, which Shane later did, but I did not, but largely because of a mishap I had with Sam Houston in a match that Sam and I still talk about every time we see each other. Do you know the mishap? I do not, no. So words getting around, and we'll get obviously we'll get back into Eddie, but I've been given the opportunity. I think this is by the third time that that UWF is running the Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia area, coming off a match I had with Chris Adams in Ohio. I'm trying to think of the name of the town. Hopefully it'll come to me. It was one of these moments where, even though I talk in my show about the first time I hyperventilated being during uh, being uh, my match, my tryout match with WCW in uh, in '89 uh, with the Steiner brothers, I came close to hyperventilating against Chris Adams when I had him in a rear chin lock because the crowd was getting with it in a way I'd never experienced. In you know, I only had a few years then. And Chris Adams, was he was a great worker, I think, in the bigger scheme of things. He's really unheralded. But he specifically asked to work with me because he'd seen me working with Shane. He wanted, he wanted to see, you not just see what I could do, he wanted to give me that opportunity to show what I could do. And he and I had a great, maybe you watch it now, maybe it's not great by the standards of today. But in the terms of, you know, drop down, get it again, you know, get your heat, you know, get some, work up to the big finish. It was the best match I'd ever had. And so they put me in a singles match with Sam Houston at the, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Big venue. Maybe there's only 1,000 people there in a 6,000-seat venue, but that's still a, that's a, a lot. big crowd. And Sam and I did not have the opportunity to talk. That's going back to Memphis. That was one of the great things about that territory is that there were places like the Nashville, the auditorium in Nashville, well, they had an auditorium, the fairgrounds, Nashville fairgrounds, where you did not see your opponent uh, beforehand. And you had to come up with a match in the ring that wasn't like the match you had the week before. And that's, you don't have the classic matches, right? But you learn, you learn on the fly, baptism of fire type of thing. So that's a situation I was in with Sam. I don't have a chance to talk to him. I knew Michael Hayes just a little bit from the tour they had done a month or two earlier. And I said, do you have any suggestions about working with Sam? He goes, oh, women love the guy. He fights up from underneath. So, you know, if you have a chance during your heat, put him in a bear hug. And the, so I've got bear hug in my mind. Right. And Sam and I are working well together. And then I get over that bear hug. And sure enough, the fans start to get with it. Sam's fighting him up up from underneath. No, no, no. Before I put him in the bear hug, I call bear hug. I'm getting my heat. I call bear hug, shoot him into the ropes. And as Sam is on his way, he says to me, watch the elbow. He may have said duck the elbow. And I remember vividly thinking, like, I'm shooting him off. I hear it, and I'm thinking to myself, watch it do what? I don't know, like I don't have the reps in, you know, to hear these You're things. You're not familiar so, with that term yet. Right, right. I'm not familiar with watching. He may have said duck it. And suffice to say, Sam comes off the ropes with an elbow that misses me by this much. And I took a bump, big bump. And I just felt my heart, you know, go down to my stomach. And I sensed then I just blew my opportunity. Now I got on him, you know, I you know, got some heat. We went home. But I was just kind of despondent. You know, I went out to whatever little hotel, nightclub was there. And I was just down, really down. And Brian Hildebrandt, 
Mark Curtis was trying to cheer me up by telling me the story about a battle royal uh, where a guy's expecting a kick to the back of the head. Uh, there's only two men in the ring. A fan throws a box of popcorn, hits the guy in the head. He thinks it's the kick. He takes a bump over the top. And it's funny, but it doesn't necessarily make me feel better. Yeah. And I would say that, that that one move cost me that that opportunity. So that would have been 87. I'm still in college at that time. Uh, but in, I'd say it cost me a year, a year, I think. Set I, you back a year. I think it set me back a year, yeah. So What happened with the bear hug? You were telling that. To... I, did, I did put the bear hug on after that, and he did fight up, and the people got with it. But um, clearly when a guy sells an elbow, oh, man, I just my heart goes out to guys. Uh, I, I, like, I'm, not a fan, I'm not a fan of the botch things because first of all i don't like to see people laugh at injuries you know like that guy who comes off the second or top rope uh and he just com- compound fractures oh it's awful it's like oh man god i think there's you know i think there is a disclaimer but i hate to see that type of thing yeah. i don't find any humor in it and uh, it's funny to see guys mess up moves if you know they're uh, it's not going to affect their livelihood. But, but if it if, hurts their career, it's if not it, good. Yeah, if, they, if they're devastated by it and uh, it sets them back, uh, not only a year, but in some case, you know, somebody, you may remember what that guy has done 10 years after the fact. You know, so-and-so, what Rocky Balboa says, they don't remember you, they remember the rep. He's talking about little Marie who hangs out by the Atomic Hoagie shop. So they don't necessarily know you, they know the rep. They remember you as that guy who messed up that move. So that was a oh, that was a devastating It's setback. also how you respond to it though. I'll never forget live on Raw, you're in the ring with uh with Rock, his sunglasses fly off. That's not planned. Yeah. You you've immediately improv and make the the botch hysterical. Put it on his head. The Rock thanks you for that. It's tremendous. And then it wasn't shown on SmackDown. You would have seen it in a clip after the fact. And at the time, I know we're jumping decades here, generations even, but what we were looking for out of that program with the Rock and Sock connection was for the Rock to embrace me. Not not physically, but um, all right. Warm up to the idea. Warm up to the idea, and then once I gain his trust, boom, I'm going to turn on him. Uh, Two things happened. One, it took off. To an extent that none of us would have right. thought on paper. People loved it. To the point where people still talk about it. That was 24 years ago. And it wasn't that long. Yeah, it, we didn't didn't run that long. So the idea that uh, the Rock and Sock Connection are up there on WWE's top 10 list of tag teams. Along, it's hysterical. It's ridiculous. It. Yeah, yeah. It's like Rock and Roll Express. They're still together, right? Road 40 Warriors. years. Yeah, yeah. Road Warriors, uh, Midnights, and then there's Rock and Sock. We're for together for eight weeks. Yeah, eight weeks. <laughs> um, but we were also looking for that moment where Rock would em- you know, embrace me. And so when, I, when that happened, I was like, here's the moment. This is the moment. In my head, I thought that to myself. Then I watch the show when it comes out a couple of days later, and it's not there. I can't remember who I asked. They said, we didn't think that would be good for The Rock's character. I was like, this is exactly it's yes. exactly what we were looking for. And so it was. It probably cost me one or two really good uh, pay-per-view uh, payoffs in that I, we didn't do the turn. But I just felt like what I was getting from the fans was so real yeah, like that turn, the kinder, gentler mankind was resonating with people, 
am, uh, had I known that there was a route that Shawn Michaels, uh, he kind of carved out that swath for the short-term heel turn, which is the primary reason why I ended up doing the, the heel turn with Edge in um, 2006. is like, people are going to forget quickly. They'll embrace me back as a baby yes. face. I'll do this little run. I'll have fun with it. But at the time, what I was doing felt so real that I felt like I, I'd be betraying the fans in a bad way. Right. You're not in a good way to get heat, but in a, oh, we really... We wanted this. We wanted this, and you took it away from us. All right, boys and girls, you know what time it is. It's time for me to tell you about Chili Sleep, and I was just telling Mick about it. And, and here's the thing about this, Mick. Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. And you've lived in the South. Mm-hmm. you got to have a ceiling fan in your bedroom. It's like we're required by law down here. Yes. Uh, well, here's the reason. Temperature-controlled sleep is going to repair your muscles after a hard day's work. It's going to improve your cognitive function so you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And that's been my experience. I have a chilly sleep. I've got the Uller system. I've had it for over a year now. It's changed my life. What I've got now is a customizable, climate-controlled sleep solution that improves my entire well-being. Now, they make the Uller. You can also check out the Cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro-powered mattress toppers right it's temperature controlled it fits over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature let me explain mick my wife likes to sleep a little warmer right so her side she wants to be at like 75 i like to sleep a little cooler i want to be at like 67 yeah i get a perfect night's sleep at that but before i had chilly sleep mick i'm cranking down the ac i'm flipping the pillow now I'm paying to heat my laundry room. I, I don't need my laundry room to be cooler. I need my bed to be cooler. Chili Sleep has made that happen. This is perfect for you to get that deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. Chili Sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Real quick, listen to this now. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili Sleep can make that happen. They've made it happen for me. Prior to Chili Sleep, Mick, I was sleeping like five, six hours a night. With Chili Sleep, I'm seven, eight, nine. I even slept 10 hours once with Chili Sleep. It's unbelievable to wake up and not feel tired. It sounds incredible because I'm the same way. My wife likes it hotter. Mm-hmm. I like it cooler. Mm-hmm. I lose out. Of course. Lose that argument. I'm a guy. It's what we do. Yep. And uh, a guy in a successful marriage has to learn to admit he's wrong, even when he knows in his heart he's not every Cor- once in a while. Correct. Has to learn to uh, make the uh, thermostat the wife's realm, but now we get our say. Well, yeah, man. And, and here's the thing, too. You don't want to wake up all hot and sweaty. You're not going to get a good night's sleep. You're going to get up and pee. You're going to be fighting with the covers. N- none of that anymore. So head on over to chillysleep.com forward slash Foley to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for Mick Foley listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discount. Wake up refreshed every day. So let's talk about you and Eddie right. opening the show September 15th, Penn Hall in Philadelphia. Belser would report it was a one star match and disappointing. <laughs> Eddie defeated you for the win after the hot shot. Do you remember this match? Was it a disappointment? Yeah, it was a disappointment. Look, Eddie and I, I was, I was going to say that I, I didn't see Eddie after uh, UWF 
until Joel, but I did. Eddie was three in times the w- WCW. Yeah, right? WCW, and I believe we had good matches. You know, a couple of TV tapings and a house show. Yeah, I think. yeah, and uh, one of the TV tapings in particular was I thought it was a good, really good match. So it was, it was disappointing. I wasn't sure where I I lead it off with an awful promo. Uh, I, it it was. I don't know. I don't. I did. I don't have an excuse for it. Certainly wasn't Eddie's fault. Um, well, you're not the seasoned vet yet. You're you're finding your voice still. I've got five years in, uh, and I'd worked with guy. Like I said, I'd got the I had the experience in Memphis where I've worked people uh, I haven't talked to. I've got some experience in working with people who don't even speak the English. Uh, not talking about Japanese wrestlers yet, but talking about a couple of uh, uh, wrestlers from the Middle East, where you not only you're not seeing them, you're you don't even understand them, and yeah. uh, their under their understanding of you is really is, is not a hundred percent. I don't want to say it's minimal, but not one hundred percent. So I don't want to offer that up as an excuse because I thought I. I'd worked at that point three territories. I, you know, when you're in world class and you're working every week at the Sportatorium, it, it, I should have done better. I was new to the babyface thing, and this is before I realized, you know, the, the best way to be a good, effective babyface as a character is to embrace that same character you were as a heel. And do the same things people liked enough about you as a heel to kind of turn you. Don't change it all. Right, don't change it all. And here I was trying to be Ricky Steamboat. I think I may have thrown with in an arm drag. Yeah, Ricky Steamboat with cornrows. So it was. Did you lose a bet? Why did you have cornrows? Did you go to Jamaica with the wife? What was the deal? No, I think uh, I had a friend uh, who I helped train named Sonny Blaze. And uh, we went off somewhere to do a show, uh, and he knew someone who did hair, and so I'm, ah, I'll do like, I'll do. Yeah, I can't remember. I had the whole thing done. When I met Herb Abrams, I had like four rows done, I remember and I that. believe I even had like little teddy bears, which you're asserting your masculinity if you don't care that you're wearing teddy bears in your cornrowed hair, like you don't care about too much, you know, as far as what people think of you stylistically. Um, I think I may have had a, I had a long, this was uh, all decked out. So uh, it was considerable amount of time went into this. But I think, again, it was, uh, it was Sonny Blaze's friend who did it. So you're brought back out later in this same show because Manny Fernandez hasn't arrived at that yeah. point And they want you to take on Abdul the Butcher. In reality, Manny was booked somewhere else that night. He's late arriving in the building. So you're just going to sort of be the stand in until Manny gets there. Right. And according to Meltzer, you bleed buckets with Abdul the Butcher, and then eventually Manny comes in, and it's a brawl all over the building. Uh, boy, this is independent wrestling at its finest, <laughs> is it not? Okay, I know you're not scheduled to be in there, yeah, but that guy's coming. He's just not here yet. Just go bleed for him a little bit. I was wearing a UWF shirt, I believe, that day, and I had the cornrows. Uh, I don't think it was buckets, but it was substantial, and it was more in playing to my strengths. You know, that if I'm going to be the baby face, then bring in these Hallmark bumps. Even if not Hallmark bumps, I could, I, you know, it wasn't like I had two or three. Like, I could turn just about any bump into something special. Even something as, as simple as a shoulder tackle becomes something pretty devastating of Abdullah the Butcher's doing it to you on concrete. Yes. So Abby and I had worked together uh, in WCW when I was part of Sullivan Slaughterhouse. 
he came in as Norman the Lunatic's guy, and so it was uh, Norman, Abby, and Mike Rotundo. Here's a strange yes, it pairing is. against uh, me, Kevin, and maybe been Bigelow at that point. Uh, but at house shows and tape shows alike, you know, one of our spots was I come running one uh, full speed, 100% to Abby, boom, I take that bump, and people know it hurts. You know, they can hear it. They can hear the thud against Abdullah. They can hear the thud in the concrete. So that was a pretty big bump. It was basic, but it was big and it was believable. Uh, the, the show itself has 1,500 fans right. here in Philadelphia. That's a $22,000 gate. That's nothing to sneeze at back then. Just for comparison, the NWA ran a show that very same night in Waco, Texas, with the Southern Boys versus the Freebirds. They had 130 fans. 130 fans in Waco? Yep. The Cobo Arena in Detroit. Had Sting taking on Ric Flair, thousand fans. A thousand fans. So you guys are not a joke when it comes to drawing. Right. So I realize that maybe the finances aren't in order, but you're certainly putting together a product that more fans want to see, even than the NWA, and even more than the Freebirds and the Southern Boys, which is pretty crazy. Um, that Goodhart show had Lawler and Terry Funk on top. In what type of match does it say? I'm not sure. Because I don't want to... Uh, he was the king of the gimmick matches here. We're going to yes. talk about that. But it was one after another. It was one after another. And I do remember uh, the uh, fans bring weapons uh, match. So it was like... A go- it was more or less a lumberjack match where fans... Uh, fans were the lumberjacks with weapons. And uh, let's just say the fans learned to embrace the idea of using the weapons on Lawler more than they did Terry Funk because the first time they throw Terry out, uh, he gets hit. Well, I can't remember what kind of weapons they had, but Terry's got a weapon of his own, you know, that huge left hand. And I think the first time he dropped somebody, I don't know if he dropped him or if he just swung, that was a message to all those fans that they were going to stay as far away from Terry as possible. So you fans with weapons, anytime Lawler throws... A funk throws Lawler over. They go to Lawler, do a little something, roll him back in. Anytime they throw Terry Funk out, those fans with the weapons, they kept their distance. So there was only the one time where they dared come in because they knew they were going to get hit. You know, yeah. they signed their their disclosure, whatever they signed, uh, uh, the the legal thing. And so legally, Terry can rough these guys up. And I think it was all it took was one person. Uh, to get that message. And they never did that again. Never did that again. Well, as you were sort of alluding to, Joel, as a promoter, he's not believing in traditional wrestling formats. You know, the card doesn't build to something chaotic. Match one is chaos. Yeah. That sets the tone for the whole show. And you're booked regularly from that point on. And you refer to him in your book as your most consistent booker at the time. Because he was running house shows, and I'm glad that Joel saw something in me. It would have been easy to just discard me after that, uh, after that one-star match. I I thought we were getting close to two-star time. I just got to tell you, I think (laughs) could have thrown us an extra half a star. I I don't want to ask a, a, a personal financial detail, but are you getting paid more based on the gimmick match, or is it a flat rate? You're going to do the same thing every time. I was making two fifty a night, two hundred fifty dollars a night, and uh, then it got it got bumped up when I did the uh, craziness. Well, no, when I did the three matches in one night, okay, I ended up being paid, you know, probably triple, probably seven fifty. 
Um, so it's not more if it's more violent. It's more if it's more matches. Yeah, and he thought I deserved. You know, he thought I deserved it. Sure. That was clearly the that was the biggest payoff I'd received. I think even taking into account WCW house shows, um, I probably got fifteen hundred dollars for a pay per view at that time. Uh, and I, my apologies to WCW if it was a thousand dollars more. Uh, it may have been. But as far as house shows, yeah, I went out there. I remember asking some people. I think I would have consulted with Bill Apter and a couple of the guys I'd known about what type of price. And two fifty seemed to be. It felt like something I could get regularly. So you returned back to Tri-State at the original sports bar on December fourth to uh, defeat J.T. Smith, yes. who we know is going to be the future full-blooded Italian. Uh, <laughs> J.T. was also known to be a risk taker. He was, yeah. And so he liked, JT liked the stuff I'd done in uh, WCW. It seems funny they only had this six-month run, but I was seen as something of a star, you know, by the, by the talent in the dressing room. I was seen as something of a veteran, even though I only had the, the five years in at that point. And JT and I had some good matches. I remember that one, uh, as I believe uh, I had the, the, the missing uh, top teeth and that one of the other teeth went through my lip. So I believe there's a photo of me being able to squirt, you know, water or whatever. I may have had a shot of alcohol just to, uh, for its healing properties. So it may have been a shot of Jack Daniels that I, I was able to squirt underneath that, under, you know, through that little puncture wound. And that may have been what gave me the idea for Helena Cell when I realized I had the, the, uh, uh, the big puncture that I was trying to stick that tongue out through that puncture wound. And it was much bigger, it was a 14-stitch wound, to oh. stick it out and wriggle it. And uh, you never saw it wriggling, and that's, it just looked like I was smiling. That's where JR came in with that, hey, look. God, they looking at me smiling. And it was a great look. But uh, so the match, was, it wasn't JT's fault in any way. It's just that, you know, a, a working punch, if it catches you here and because and, uh, of the layout of the teeth, it, you know, you, you risk a little bit of damage. But I remember that being a good match. I, I thought it was a good match. Well, next up is the quarterly show for Joel. It's going to be the winner challenge number two. It's March 2nd from Penn Hall, once again in Philadelphia. This time it's Falls Count Anywhere, and you wrote in your book, it's your favorite match of your career until Beach Blast 92. Meltzer had this to say, Cactus Jack pinned Eddie Gilbert in a brawl all over the building that was said to have been incredible when Eddie's valet, Veronica Lane, threw her shoe to Eddie, but Jack got it and used it. Cactus took crazy bumps and suplexed the table onto Gilbert outside the ring. Four stars. Mm. Suplexing a table onto a guy. Not a guy onto a table, a table onto a guy. It's so, I don't see why the big guys don't use that regularly. I love it. There was a one time when uh, Pillman, Pillman was coming with uh, Kim, uh, Kip, Kim Woods, yep. strength coach of the uh, Bengals. Bengals. Yep. They came to see me wrestle Chris Candido at Peel's Palace in Erlanger, Kentucky. So I wanted to do something to impress them. So I'm going to do the, I'm going to suplex the, the table. And I think Chris was going to move because this was a heavy table. Uh, it was a lot. I mean, this isn't a, a table with folding legs. This is the full wooden table. I get it up to about here, and then I start having trouble with it. And I finally, I'm, if Brian, if Pillman hadn't been there and Kim hadn't been there, I would have given up. 
And slowly but surely, I got the thing way, 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 way up in the air. And when I dropped it, it sounded like a, you know, a bomb, shot. boom. And thankfully, Chris got out of the way. But that's something I just thought was cool that I hadn't seen anyone do. I ended up using it, you know, multiple times over the years. Uh, not so often that it was predictable, but yeah. I'd say I used it five or six pay-per-views over the course of a career. And uh, and I do remember when Ed, I, I think trying to pile drive Eddie on a table and he backdrop, backdrop me and the table breaks and you know it, it wasn't just it was like boom the one leg gave way which was a more dramatic fall. It, it felt real. It felt real because Eddie then tumbled on top of me and you had the major, you know, double sell. Even your placement on the table, it was more towards the end, not the middle. So when he backdrops you off, it's not just through the table like you would see a lot in the mid-90s yeah, in the WBF. Yeah. I mean, you're off the thing. It was, uh, it was organic. It felt real. Yeah. And the suspension of disbelief is what we fans really – Look for, which is probably why so many fans resonated with your stuff, but or your stuff resonated with them because we know well, they fell on concrete. You know, some fans yeah. uh, think, well, the wrestling ring is like a trampoline. We know that's not true, but a lot of fans are like, oh, all that. Well, he fell on concrete. Yeah, it's uh, there, there's no way to fake. That. I wanted to be that guy, and I touched on this, I think, in the, uh, the special I did, the, the Hard Knock special. I did for WWE, where I was the fan who wanted, I was a fan who loved seeing moves that made me turn to my friends, whether I was in the arena or on the couch on a Saturday night going, oh, that had to hurt. Yes. And I wasn't saying like, all right, the animosity's real. Then there was that other thing, that other thing where you'd see like Snook on Morocco. I really and, don't like it. Yeah, that right. had to be. I know what wrestling is, but that was real. And so you, I wanted the moves that would make people say that hurt, and I wanted to be able to suspend disbelief to where people thought, this might be real. This might be real. And so those bumps helped out. And Eddie, um, by that point, uh, you know, we'd, uh, we'd, we realized that going in a brawling direction was something that, that benefited me. Eddie was a great brawler. It's part of your DNA, I think, if you're brought up watching Memphis wrestling. The Tupelo concession yeah, stand brawl to stay, had right? to be something that he wanted to recreate. Sure. And this false count anywhere thing, I mean, just brawling all over the building became something you saw every weekend on ECW TV. But you didn't really see it a ton in WCW and no. almost never in the WWF. Right. Uh, the action stayed with inside the barricade at least. Yeah. But you doing this felt very Memphis. I assume Eddie was, this was right up his alley. Oh, sure. Right? And I should probably give a. a a little uh, credit to uh, Rotten Ron Star. Rotten Ron Star was a great hand and a big star, and uh, you know uh, promotions across the country. Never was known on a national basis, uh, but this is a story I told uh, at the uh, Starcast, where I, I was just trying to put together some things so it'd be a new show. And I'm like, okay, I, I remember telling my daughter this story because um, I had uh, I told. Uh, uh, Rock Rims that I would write uh, the forward to uh, uh, to Ron's the book that he had written with Ron, and like two or three months went by with nothing from me. And he was, how about just a blurb? You know, where a blurb is takes about five minutes of time as opposed to hours of time to do a, a good forward. And I thought, am I really going to like take everything this guy did for me in '89? 
given that I, you know, basically he taught me how to brawl around the building. So it was like a newfound uh, uh, skill for me and one that I would benefit from greatly. And he was probably making 150 at night, you know, as a, a respected veteran. So we probably did those brawls around the building five, five nights. So he made 750 and I had a new lease on life. So Ron was the guy who took me all around the building. This is after Robert Fuller tells me in the car ride on the way over that he's worried about me. I said, why so? He goes, well, <clears throat> I don't think uh, Ron likes me or Jimmy much. Jimmy Golden is Rob, Robert Fuller's cousin. Why is that? He goes, well, we broke his neck. Jeez. <laughs> oh, well, there's double, that. Double back suplex, a little high on the shoulders and head, breaks his neck. Don't think he's gotten around forgiving us. Afraid he might. I sound like Foghorn Leghorn. I love it when I do it. But that is Robert to an extent, right? It's not sure. a great Robert Fuller, but it's not too far off. And then I'd already heard about Ron Ron Starr breaking bottles over his head in interviews, which I would later go on to borrow from. We all borrow from each other. Jake Roberts said a wise man knows where to steal his material. But I've also heard that he has a handful of lawsuits from beating up fans. Uh, and he has flashbacks from Vietnam. So now I'm going to go into the ring with a guy who's angry with me, uh, even if it is, uh, you know, anger, Mr. redirected, anger at uh, Fuller and Golden. Uh, Freud's theory of transference, I believe, is what I was looking for. He's got multiple lawsuits. He breaks bottles over his head. And so I go up to try to talk to him. Hello, Mr. Star. I'm Cactus Jack. Is there anything you'd like to do out there? And he looks at me and says, I'll see you in the ring. Oh. And it's like I got all these factors working against me. And, um, and then he and I go out there, and it's just like, it's like a fit like a glove. Like this is where I belonged all along. All along. I'm thinking of an old kink song called This Is Where I Belong. Like this is exactly where I belong. So when I read that, uh, I, it took me about five, six hours to do a really good, I thought a really good forward. I read it to my daughter, and she was so surprised to learn that wrestlers didn't always talk to each other. And she said, Dad, wasn't it difficult to have a match like that? I go, yeah, yeah, some of them stunk, no doubt about it. Some of the stuff that we uh, called in the ring stunk. I said, but there are other times where it was, it felt magical. That was the first time I started using the the uh, the idea of an element of magic being in that ring or in the arena. And the fans have a lot to do with it, too. You can't predict it. You can't produce it. And that's why I'm grateful for that WWE extends mania over the course of two days because it's almost impossible to have that element of magic. Seven hours in. Seven hours in. So you're practically dooming your main events to being less than they could be. Uh, and you're greatly increasing those chances when it's when it's uh, spread over two nights, but that that's the props to Rotten Ron Star. So in a way, I'm a veteran. By the time I have this brawl with Eddie Gilbert, I'm a veteran of doing these type of matches because I'd gone to say Guam, you know, with Dick Karakoff, and I'd had these wild matches with uh, Rambo, who was at the time the spitting image of, of Stallone. To the point where the fans in Guam and Saipan, they thought he was the guy. He would go out there. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, Rambo, but he was a table-breaking specialist as well. Sure. So he loved doing that stuff, and the matches were wild, and they were believable. So by the time Eddie and I got in there, 
for that match uh, for Joel, I'm not trying to be a babyface I was never supposed to be. I'm not trying to be Ricky Steamboat with dreadlocks. I'm finding my own groove. And I've got Eddie out there who makes everything I do look as good as possible. And who the biggest thing is his belief in me helps me believe in myself. And that's so important in a business where guys are knocking you down pretty regularly, especially if you don't have the physique you're looking for. And if where it's been made clear to you in WCW that no, we don't have you know, we don't have a place for you. We have a place for you if you want to get beaten every week right. and greatly shorten your career, but there's no room for growth here. So to have a guy like Eddie who had left WCW for the same reasons, you know, wanted more. Wanted more. It didn't matter to him that he was taking less money. He loved it. He loved it. So, uh, Eddie uh, also knew how to keep open lines of communication with the newsletters. He did, yeah. A- Eddie was talking to Wade Keller on the regular. Uh-huh. And um, he knew how to become an internet darling before that was a thing. <laughs> and he did that. But when you when you come back through the curtain, if you will, after this False Count Anywhere match, um, you and I have recorded some, or I think, some really good podcasts that I'm pretty proud of. Me and too. afterwards you yeah. said... Hey man, this had like a big match feeling yeah, to me. Yeah. When you come back through the curtain after doing that false count anywhere, after feeling some ups and downs in your career, did you think, damn, that's it? Yeah. That's TV stuff right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just a few nights ago, I was thinking about the house show match for NXT with uh, Charlotte and Sasha Banks. And it was the first time that the women had main evented an arena show. I think that the the women had Trish and Lita had done it, um, and and in fairness, uh, uh, I think Mickey James and uh, Victoria or Mickey, Mickey James had done it with somebody in uh, in TNA, but this was the first time you know under WWE auspices, uh, and I was able to sit right up there like with Joey Styles at the uh, announcers table and they had you know they they just had such great matches the first time that uh, like i said it was really a historical match and i was able to bring three of my four children back to the dressing with room with me and just enjoy that glow like i was getting it by association but it, that's i reminded me of how much i missed that feeling of walking through the curtain and knowing you'd done something special and so I, I've reached out uh, a few times, you know, to talent over the years uh, when they're really happy. And I said, was it one of those nights where you don't want to go to sleep because you're so busy reliving it? And it's like, exactly. That's exactly what it's like. So that's one of the things I missed the most. And that's why it was so great that I got had that feeling when you and I were done. Because it's not a feeling I get every time I go back sure. to WWE. Like, you, get, you understand there's 15,000 people there on a certain level. This should feel... More special than it does. But then, like, when Triple H and I and Stephanie nailed that one interview segment, um, I think in Detroit, the week before I was fired as GM, like, that had that magical element to it. So you, it's, it's not, you don't associate it, I don't at least, with uh, the amount of people in there or the importance that other people place on it. That's it's the way the, it makes you feel. Yeah, it's the way it makes you it's feel. It's chasing the dragon we've talked about before. And it's that's why high. I tell people that you don't let other people decide for you what your WrestleMania moment in wrestling or in life is because we get to do that ourselves. Yeah. Uh, now feels like a good time to remind everybody this episode is brought to you in part by ProWrestlingTees.com, T-shirts designed 
and sold for over 2,500 pro wrestlers, all the big names, Sting, Macho Man, Stone Cold, CM Punk, and so many more. If you're looking for premium wrestling merch, get to ProWrestlingTees.com and support wrestling legends from the past and independent wrestling stars of the future with over 100,000 products shipped worldwide. When you order from Pro Wrestling Tees, all profits go directly to their families. Visit ProWrestlingTees.com today. And now they're introducing Powerbomb Pizza from Pro Wrestling Tees. It's powered by Kitsch Data. Powerbomb Pizza is pizza crafted and sold by pro wrestlers. Powerbomb Pizza is the first delivery-only pizzeria with over 30 locations that combine wrestling with handcrafted classic pizza recipes. All the profits go directly to the wrestling legends you love, like Mick Foley, Roddy Piper, Bret Hart, Eddie Guerrero, and more. Order today on Uber Eats or visit powerbombpizza.com. So just to put some context into this show, you're on fourth. Yeah. This four-star match, False County, where you're the fourth match on the show. The match before you was Ivan Koloff and Manny Fernandez in a Russian chain match. Yeah. Now, the match after you is the Sheik. Yes, that Sheik <laughs> versus Abdul the Butcher. After that, well, it's Tony Stetson and Johnny Hotbody in a barbed wire match. <laughs> and the main event match is what you talked about earlier, Lawler Funk and okay. a fan participation lumberjack match. <laughs> And, and people used to give Russo stuff about too many gimmicks. Woof. Wow, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I know we're going to talk about me and Eddie and the barbed wire, right? Yeah, of course. So th- are we jumping there now? Well, let's, let's, okay. let's ease through there. Right. Joel's keeping booking you on these shows, and you're actually trading wins with David Sammartino on a couple spot shows. Okay. David Sammartino is not a name we hear a lot about these days. Everybody talks about Bruno. I've always felt bad for David. It felt like those were shoes that were almost impossible to fill in the Northeast. Uh, and his dad had a on again, off again relationship with Vince. That couldn't help. What can you tell us about David? You probably got to know him a lot better than any of us will. I did. I did. I had really good matches with, uh, not really good. They were good matches um, for Herb Abrams, uh, for Joel, a couple independent shows. Um, but he was, he never really escaped, uh, Bruno's shadow. The last time I saw David, he was really standoffish with me. And then I f- went to him, I said, David, like, do we have some type of heat I'm not aware of? He goes, tell you the truth. I'm not very happy with what you said about me in your book. And I said, what did I say? He goes, so you're telling me you didn't say it. I said, no, I, it's in the book. I said it because I wrote it. I'm just, I don't know what it, what it is I said. He goes, forget about it. It's water under the bridge. I said, no, it's water under the bridge. That means you forgot about it. Clearly, it still bothers you. So I saw a fan uh, who had the book. I look it up, and it says that uh, a guy named Dave Crusher-Klebanski, who was one of Danucci's trainees, he had a world of potential, but he took his, he was good friends with David, and he took a lot of career advice from David. I said, I think I said, it, uh, uh, Dave Klebanski would have gone farther had he not listened to, listen David. to David, whose you know own moves had uh, not been fruitful. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I read it and I said, "David, These this are facts. is true." I said, "You should have done more in the business than you did." Like I'm, so, and, and it was also really strange that David was selling his his gimmick photos for like. Uh, two and four dollars like he didn't understand it wasn't still 1990s i remember having my first photos abc photos and black and white was two dollars color brother that was three so and then david and i you know i'm he had one of the worst matches i've ever seen it was with larry zabisco 
uh, and it wasn't. I won't say it was Larry's doing. You could ask Larry. <laughs> Uh, I love you've been so polite. I mean, and here's the thing. He just had the worst match I've ever seen. <laughs> it was the worst. It was the worst match I've ever seen. And the, I, I'm not, I don't know what happened. I, if I had to guess, I mean, this is not me speculating. David is so lean and his diet is, I just, I'm guessing he doesn't get enough vital oils and fats in his diet. Because uh, I... It does me nothing to. It does me no good at all to, uh, to, to hammer home how bad that match was. But I'm trying to make an excuse for him. It was an essential oils issue. Sure, I think we got to get a sponsor for him. But, but David, uh, he was a, he was a really good hand. But he walked out of a few territories, you know. And I, I here I am, I'm gladly talking about territories. I left. Um, but, but we can compare resumes and see a difference. Yeah, and I think Bruno opened the door for him in a few places, and it, uh, it, it was didn't really, go as planned. Was really unfortunate. I remember one time I was talking with David. I think it may have been that first day at uh, that country club, not the same one where uh, Johnny uh, dumped spaghetti on uh, <laughs> on Daniel Larusa. From Karate Kid, but uh, something along those lines. And Bruno saw me; his face kind of lit up. He said, "I was a Danucci, I was a Danucci guy," and Bruno and Dominic were best friends. He goes, "Hey, Cactus, how are you doing?" It was only when he walked in that he saw his son, uh, and he went, "Hello, David." And uh, David said, "Hello, Dad," and that was it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there was there was a, it was a strained relationship. I hope it got better by the time. Uh, Bruno passed. I mean, I wish that for every father and son. I hope it did, but it was estranged. And, uh, um, you know, I I apologize, n- not for what I wrote. I apologize. I mean, I'm sorry that it hurt David's feelings, but facts was are facts. absolutely true. Yeah, it was my opinion, but I think my opinion is uh, justified. So when or how does Joel come to you and say, Cactus, let's have a barbed wire match? <laughs> He does present it pretty matter-of-factly, and I say, Joel, I will do it, but only if we are the first match on the card to have blood. And Joel agrees to that, my own stipulation, because I'd always I'd always wanted to do a barbed wire. You had never done one at never, this point. I don't think. No, I had. I'd done one in uh, Memphis with uh, Robert Fuller and uh, Jimmy Golden, who's me and Gary. It was our last match of the uh, Loser Leave Town match in Memphis. And I liked it. I liked this was This was the old style where the ropes are, the barbed wires put up in addition to the ropes, not in replacement like would become the Japanese style. So it's not as dangerous because the danger in the Japanese style you get hung up. You get hung up, or even you just catch it and it tears you. Oh. And there's that clip where Sabu, I guess, I think in a rare visit to the emergency room, I think he had to go. He glued it himself. Did he glue that himself? He tried to tape it in he the middle of the match. To, he tried to tape it during the match. He super glued it in the back. Super glued it in the back, okay. But, but his but, muscle's hanging out. It's unbelievable. We're talking Born to be Wired, August of 97, in the arena, the ECW arena with Terry Funk, if you're not keeping up with you and I just okay. clicking on that. But... Um, one of the most incredible, this is one of those issues I point out is that in addition to, all right, we're not a real sport. Because in a real sport, you know, you get knocked unconscious like I did at this, you know, during the cell. 
the sport, the game is over. Yeah, game's over, right? And it is now. This is a wise thing that all. I think every major wrestling organization stops a match. Kevin Nash came out, and uh, the, the, let me finish the the one story, and then I'll talk about Kevin in TNA and getting some heat for it too for standing up for the guys. Um, but it is in real sports, the match ends, contest ends when someone's knocked out. Contest ends, somebody loses a body part. You would think you get a hundred, you get a gaping wound uh, that would. You don't tape it up while the game is. Con- there is nothing else like it. You will never see a baseball player uh, ta- taping up their own wound. While the game is taking place, basketball, you'll never, you will never see someone applying, a, you know. A, super glue to a wound. <laughs> super glue to a wound. Now, it was just tape. He calls, he gets uh, Fonzie to get him taped from the back. But what's crazy is they don't even finish. I understand the old school warrior mentality of, oh, no, you got to finish the match. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've moved beyond that. I'm sure you'll talk about Kevin Nash in a minute. But still, I, I, I could almost get that because you don't want to, quote, unquote, ruin the match. Right. But in that match in particular, they got so tangled up, they couldn't move. They couldn't move. They had so they just had to call a finish, but really wasn't the finish. And it looked, well, like shit. But they can't help it. They can't move. Nah. So I don't know if it's worth let me lose an arm here. I mean, he didn't. He's fine. But gosh. we've all been in that situation where our cords are tangled up, right? Or whether it's Christmas lights or cords. Yes. And you're trying to figure it out, and you get all kinds of different ways you can do it, and there's no time clock. But I remember being tangled up in Japan, where you start trying to think, all right, if this is a Christmas lighting situation. How would I maneuver? You're trying to maneuver, and if you're wrong in maneuvering your way out of it, you get caught up worse than that. And then at a certain point, you just pull, and that's where a lot of damage comes. In the King of the Death match, I think there was one where a barb was lodged in my shoulder, and it's like, I can't get this this thing out. And you pull, and it's pretty sickening. That's why I got so much mileage when I had long hair getting my hair caught. Because you're, and again, if we're applying the Foley instantaneous risk board ratio analysis to this, you get caught up in real barbed wire. You're going to get that ooh and ah, but you could be seriously injured. Yeah. You get your hair caught up, you're going to get almost the same oohs and ahs, and all you do is you try to grab your hair at the base of the skull so that when you pull, you're not pulling from the skull, you're pulling from the end. But you're getting almost as much in the ways of... <sighs> disbelief. The hair saved and, you. Yeah, the hair hair was good, right? Wow. Long hair and long hair was easier to sell with. You know? Oh, absolutely. So, so much easier to sell with. So tell me about Kevin Nash and Tina. Kevin, I think uh, it was Motor City Machine Guns. I can't remember if it was Sabin or Shelley. And I apologize to both guys if it's not either of them. But somebody went down with an injury, and they kept wrestling around a guy who was unconscious in the ring. And so Kevin comes out for his promo, and he goes, listen, this is a taped show. When one of our guys goes down, we take care of him. And he goes, okay, take two. Ready? Rolling? Go. So he made his point, and he was suspended. And I thought he was showing up, but he was 100% right. Uh, I don't know if that would have been better done behind closed doors, but I think if it had been behind closed doors, who knows who would have seen it. Kevin's a smart guy, one of the smartest yeah. guys you'll come across. So he was making, I thought, a really bold statement and a really valuable statement, and he was making it in a public way. 
I hadn't heard that story. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Um, let's explain to our viewers. You know, this is before ECW and FMW took this barbed wire concept to a whole new level of no rope barbed wire. As you mentioned, we're just taking barbed wire here and wrapping it around the ropes. Um, is there magic to how that's done? Is there a better way or a best practice? I'm not saying can you quote unquote work it. I'm just saying from a we saw that same style of barbed wire match in Jim Crockett Promotions yeah. with Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard. Right. Um, but it is much more forgiving than the than the opposite version of that. Yeah, right? yeah. And I'd seen it. I'd seen the wire would have been wrapped around. Uh, Almost like a boxing ring yeah, to keep it together. Right. Yeah. And I'd also seen it where it was uh, brought in as uh, as two more strands uh, in between the ropes. I can't remember offhand what it was with me and Eddie, but I did feel like whatever the predicament was one that would lend itself to allowing me to do that hangman, the one that later cost me my ear. I had gotten a great reaction doing the, that move uh, on independent shows. Uh, and in and in uh, world class, uh, Chris Adams had seen me do it uh, with him on that show. Uh, Terry Taylor had seen me do it. You know, it was a move I could hit almost every single time, and I thought I could do it uh, in the wire, and that it could be pretty spectacular. As a matter of fact, we were banking on it being spectacular because it was supposed to be the end of the match, and uh, my wife, still my girlfriend at that time, she played a little role. And coming out and tending to me, and then it was the finish was altered a little. I mean, a little bit by virtue of the referee. Do you know about this? No. The, okay, so Eddie start. You know, Eddie, I get tied up, and it's everything we want it to be, right? And I get more reaction, I get more exposure nationally for this than anything I've ever done, including uh, including WCW. It's in the magazines. For months, and at that time, you know, there was probably a three-month lag. So some people aren't hearing about this match. By the way, this is not on a major cable network. No, 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 no. This no. is underground right. as it gets, but the but most yet, coverage you've got. But the Northeast had the benefit in that uh, the after magazines were out of Long Island. Uh, George Napolitano was out of, I think, Brooklyn. So it was easy to get, and the Japanese would be there as well. Uh, they would... Whether or not there was a Japanese star on, I think they, they covered Joel Goodhart. Rezzy's radio yeah. show is going to talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Oh. Ah, thank you, Grillo. Appreciate that. Grillo comes through again. <laughs> Before you tell me the story about the match, because uh, I do want to hear about the referee, it, this day is, is kind of weird because you're not only supposed to take on Eddie Gilbert for Joel Goodhart, but you're also supposed to be working for the UWF and Mr. Abrams the same day. The same day. And Meltzer had this to say. Apparently Cactus Jack, Paul Orndorff, and Bam Bam Bigelow all informed Mr. Abrams before the show that they were already booked that night for Joel Goodhart in Philadelphia. And Abrams said he was starting his show at 7 p.m. And he would put them on early so they could make their Philly date. The show didn't start until nearly 8. And Orndorff and Jack both left and had some words with Abrams. And right now, their future with the UWF mm. is in some sort of doubt. Mm. So it's interesting to think that you were going to try to do the old double shot here. And good for you. But ultimately, when he couldn't keep his word, you weren't going to miss this other opportunity. Clearly, you were invested in the barbed wire thing and probably making more money. I don't know. But uh, what can would you have tell been us? It mo- would have been the same money. So I, wouldn't, I don't believe I was bumped up over 250 because I was doing uh, 
uh, barbed wire. I don't think I would, that would not have even been a consideration for me at that time. I honestly don't remember the deal with her because I do know that I was in the, the dressing room early enough to see uh, the guys coming back from the Battle Royal. So keep in mind, I had, I had asked Joel to be the first match with some blood involved. Yep. And I said, I would like you to limit the number of matches, you know. I don't think I put a number on it. So I was surprised when I see a guy come back from that first battle royal. And he's got a little trickle of blood. I think, okay, maybe a a little hard way. Nothing can prevent that. I see another guy. And then the fourth or fifth guy, you know, he's got it coming down, you know, pouring a little more. And I... Decide to investigate, and I find out that it's no ordinary battle royal. It's a last blood battle royal, where the winner is the lone guy who's not bleeding. So everyone bleeds. So everyone. So say it's a say say it's a fifteen man. It could have been thirty. Fourteen guys bled. Fourteen guys bled, and here I am trying to make the blood meaningful in our match. And so okay, I got to dig myself out of a hole. But Eddie's the perfect guy to do it with. He's a veteran of Memphis. He's done these things before. And uh, we I don't think we're going over much. Because still at that time, like you said, barbed wire, was, it wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. So in the same way that the, the payoff to a cage match used to be that no matter what had gone, no matter what had been done during the course of that match, the payoff was always going to be when the baby face has the heel. It's going to be the raking against the mesh. It's going to be throwing that heel into the into the mesh, and that was uh, you'd get an explosion. Especially if there was a little bit of heat, depending on the program, you'd get an explosion uh, of reaction for that payoff. So in barbed wire, it's going to be a lot of um, anticipation. Going to be a lot of working towards that wire. It's very visual. It's a great place for your facial expressions. I don't know, like, you wouldn't be doing high spots at that time. I'd probably, uh, I'm afraid to go back and watch the match because, like a lot of stuff, it's probably not as good as I remember it. But I'll tell you what, that finish was dynamite. If someone relies on you financially, your spouse, your child, anyone. Life insurance gives you the peace of mind that they'll have a financial cushion if something ever happens to you. By making it easy to compare your options from top companies, Goliath Life helps make sure you're not paying a penny more than you have to for the life insurance coverage you need to protect those you love. At GoliathLife.com, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. The process is fast and easy with no hidden fees, upsells, or hassles. Goliath Life is your one-stop shop to find the life insurance you need at the right price. Head to GoliathLife.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's GoliathLife.com. So we hit this thing and it goes clockwork, boom, tied up. No one's ever seen this before, right? I first saw this, I believe, uh, the hangman, I believe, when uh, Randy Savage takes this bump in an old Memphis batch with, uh, with exotic Adrian Street. The next time, because they, I think they put it on Wrestling Gold. I said, oh, that's cool. And then I see it as a non-finish to a match between uh, Morocco and, uh, and Snooker. So Morocco is counted out because he catches himself 
and the ropes. So this is one of those things I'm able to go frame by frame, see how it's done, experiment a little bit, boom. I re- it's a timing issue, you know? Right. Uh, a lot of hand-eye coordination, timing, momentum. Um, but when I nail it, it's really satisfying. You get the whoos and ahs. Even these diehard fans have never seen it before. And Eddie just starts going berserk, right? I think he's got my cowboy boot. I'm not sure. But Eddie starts not only working on me, but now he's working on the baby faces who come out to try to save me. And guys are taking their shots from Eddie. Referee tries to talk some sense to Eddie. Boom. Referee goes down. Eddie, I believe he was married to Medusa at this point. I believe so. Eddie had come back, I think, from Japan, and he was feeling the jet lag to the point where he later on, I believe, had to be hospitalized for um, lack of fluids, dehydration. Uh, I'm in this situation where I get out, and I'm a mess when I get out. I'm I'm bleeding pretty heavily. And of all things, the guy who gets stretchered out is the referee because he can't tell anyone that he's selling a move. So to the fans, it's like, here's this guy. He's been wrapped up in barbed wire, and he's being helped out by three or four people. Eddie Gilbert is bloodier, I believe, than I am, and he's being helped out. And here's this referee, and he's going to the ambulance. (laughs) He's going to the hospital in the ambulance because he doesn't know how to tell the EMTs that he's fine. He's fine. Uh, the show draws 1,253 fans. It's a gate of $22,311. Meltzer would say, the best match on the show was said to be a barbed wire match with Cactus Jack versus Eddie Gilbert. Both guys juiced heavy, and Cactus ended up hung in the barbed wire, and the match was stopped and ruled a no contest. Cactus's fiance came down to ringside to check on him since they were having problems getting him unhooked from the barbed wire, and I think everybody assumes that was not planned, but it was. For her to come down? All these years later, it's we're talking 32 years ago, 31? Uh, yeah. I, I think it was planned. I, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I do know I was wearing the Brody shirt. Uh, you can see I was preparing a little bit because I had like kind of like a, I don't want to say it was a scarf. I don't want to uh, interject on MGF's gimmick and uh, Jericho's gimmick. So it wasn't a scarf, but I had something around my neck because I, I didn't want the, I knew that the real danger was for one of those things to catch me as I was going over and, oh God. and catch yeah. me and tear me. And clearly no one wants to be part of that or see something like that. Um, I remember my wife and I drive, we would drive home after every good art show because he only usually was the one big show. It wasn't a weekend Usually a Saturday night, driving back to Long Island and just having that feeling of elation. And then attempting to get served at a restaurant. <laughs> and Meltzer said after the match you had close to 50 cuts. Probably, Is that right? Yeah, probably. I mean, they're mostly little ones, you know. But I think there was a pretty good one, uh, one or two, on my face. Uh, I've got some photos of me and Brian Hildebrandt a week or two, a week or so after that, and I'm bandaged up pretty heavily. How does... Uh I'm just fascinated with Mrs. Foley. Mrs. Foley's a freaking model. And yeah. here you are in almost Beauty and the Beast fashion, running through barbed wire. Yeah. And then, okay, well, let's go to supper. It's a look. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. We is were it not? denied service, by the way. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm swathed like uh, in more gauze than I probably already used as Boris Karloff. 
What'd they do? Just Universal. say, sir, this is a Wendy's. Uh, no, it was a, it was a nice <laughs> restaurant. I had the two fifty in my pocket. You know, I was ready to, you know. Going to O'Charlie's. Yeah. Good in yeah. the neighborhood. I don't think I was going through a drive through But it was still a, and, and we had a, I think I had a, a, a Chrysler LeBaron convertible. How do they deny you service? Just because you have a bloody bandage all over you? Yeah. I think, I mean, guys have been denied uh Entry onto That's planes. That's on the sign, though. That no shirt, no shoes, no service. <laughs> Doesn't say no blood, no bloody bandage. But you've, you've you've heard of guys not being allowed on planes? Yeah, guys who would be in a bloody match and then try to catch a flight, and then sir, no, we can't, we 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 can't do that. I got on the plane um, following the King of the Death match in some really rough shape, but that was a day after. Um, if I had tried to get on a flight right after that match, yeah, I think they would have been well within their rights to re- refuse service. I'm pretty sure Cardona lost his deposit after he wrestled that death match. That hotel <laughs> that he stayed in, I'm pretty sure he's not allowed back there anymore. Well, uh, when we get to the uh, the uh, two out of three falls match, there was, I think, about $8,000 worth of damage uh, done to the building, mainly in blood on those fabric chairs. Because, you know, these would be those big, thick, heavy chairs that were so cumbersome to use. And the worst, you know the ones I'm talking about, right, with mm-hmm. the hinges. And so a smart guy would, that's where you had to start putting a couple of uh, the steel or aluminum alloy chairs under a ring. Because otherwise you'd use those things. In a worst case scenario, you're not getting the pop. Nope. It either hurts like hell or you looks work like it to it or it looks crappy. Yeah. And then you also risk, like Rotten Ron Starr nearly lost his, the tip of his finger in the one match because it had closed on his uh, on his finger when he was swinging it. Yeah. Damn. So. Well, so coming out of this bar bar match, it's announced there's going to be a two out of three falls match in August. And I say two out of three falls match because... I guess it's sort of like the WWF would do years later with a three stages of hell. Yeah, it's exactly. It's three matches yeah. with three stipulations. So it's false count anywhere for fall number one, then a stretcher match for fall number two, then a steel cage match. This is probably the biggest undertaking of your career at this point, is it not? It is. Yeah, it's bigger than anything I've done. And I believe by that point I'd done a, a one-month tour of All Japan, I think. I did that in March of 90. Yeah, so this is... Uh, August of 91, I think I've already got interest, or maybe I've already started back. I don't know. I don't know. I had not started back with WCW. And I'm also, uh, like, in this precarious position where I'm getting pushed on Joe, on Joe Petticino's global wrestling, but losing a few matches while now being uh, shown as, like, a monster heel on WCW. And I know that was an issue. So I'm not sure where... You have a start date, but you haven't started okay. yet with okay. WCW. Okay. So uh, you and Eddie are brought up in the Observer for the Bruiser Brody Memorial Award. Uh, at the time, this is the best brawler award in wrestling. Was is that even still? still? Yeah. Okay. But I'm saying this is relatively fresh. You know, Bruiser's only been gone for a few years. Three years, yeah. Is that something that was on your radar? Like, I know eventually you got to a point where you said, I'm not reading this anymore. But... In the early 90s, where you're trying to make it and you're trying to get a name for yourself, are you really looking forward to The Observer every week? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm not, and I stopped reading it not because it wasn't good, but because as a father and a husband, it just, what I lost from reading it, you know, that one or two days where it would throw me off. 
I'm only home a few days sparingly. So you need to be uh, up and be good dad. Yeah, yeah. Arn yeah. Anderson style. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, you got to be that super dad. That's uh, that was the, that was the toughest gimmick of all, you know. So August third, you and Eddie are going to square off at Penn Hall, and again, you would think based on the way this is built, this is going to be the biggest crowd yet, but it's only 562 folks. That's all this it was. Uh, Meltzer would say this. Speaking of amazing, the performance of Cactus Jack this past Saturday night on Joel Goodhart's show in Philadelphia had everyone raving. Jack, who now has a return WCW starting day as a heel to be among a quartet of crazy villains who will be programmed with Sting until the end of the year, planned for tonight in St. Joseph, Missouri, worked three matches on one show, all against Eddie Gilbert. Gilbert was scheduled to return tonight to WCW as a face, Despite the crowd only being 562 fans, Jack had said ahead of time that he was going to try and have the best explosive match in history, followed by the best stretcher match and capped off by the best cage match. As far as the best in history goes, that's open to debate. But I guess there's no debating that Jack and Gilbert weren't willing to do just about everything to make good on that statement. The explosive match went on second in the show. It, with it mainly consisting of brawling all over the Pennsylvania Hall with tables and chairs and garbage cans, Gilbert juiced heavily in the match with them trading, hitting one another with whatever wasn't nailed down until Jack pinned Gilbert in 16-13 and in a match that was described as being between four and a half and four and three quarter stars. That should be good enough for a whole week's work since more than one person said it was the best singles match thus far in 91 in the United States. They came back two matches later for the stretcher match. Among the highlights of this was Cactus coming off the middle rope to the floor with an elbow drop on a garbage can. Gilbert, who was lying on the garbage can, moved, and then later dumping the contents of the garbage can out, and Gilbert broke a non-gimmicked white cooler bottle over Jack's head. Both guys juiced heavily in this one as well, which went 9.50, with Gilbert winning when Jack did a stretcher job after the beer bottle incident that was said to be between four and three quarters and five stars, which once again would make it the best singles match in the U.S. this year. Only a couple hours later, after many of the fans had already gone home because the show went four and a half hours, they went out and completely had a burned-out audience and did a cage match. They ended up getting out of the cage and brawling all over the building once again. The highlight of this match was Jack standing on top of the cage, Gilbert drop-kicking the cage, and Jack crotching himself and then taking a bump backwards from the top of the cage to the arena floor on his back. The actual finish of this match was said to be three and a half stars, held back because the drain crowd had nothing left to react with. It was a double disqualification when Doug Gilbert and Bam Bam Bigelow did run-ins, which would set up a tag match for the next show, provided none of them were already starting with WCW. Bigelow, by the way, is also WCW bound. My God, you did all of this <laughs> on the same show, right? knowing, hey, I'm, I'm ready for my big TV push, but first... Let's yeah. throw caution to the wind. I don't remember. 500 sounds low to me. I knew it had been down, but I don't. It seemed like a lot more than 500. But uh, I thought it was in the 800. Uh, but that's 30, 31 years ago. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't. Prob- I don't know if they stand up to the, sta- you know, the standards of the day. We've got them linked in the description of yeah. our show. So yeah. if you're listening to our show today, we want you to go to iTunes or anywhere you enjoy, and we've got a link where you can go ahead and watch all of this on YouTube. We don't own the footage, so we've shown you some clips here and there, uh, but you can see everything that we can find in the link below. So I remember uh, talking about that first match, that, uh, that not, the, not the first match, 
but the uh, the really good false count anywhere uh, from months earlier and saying it was the first time I thought it had a great match. That before that I thought it had great moments, but that match with Eddie was the first great match I'd had. But I'm still such a believer in the moments because it's the moments that we remember. Yeah. Like we don't remember uh, thirty star ratings. Star ratings. We remember those those moments and how they made us feel. Mm-hmm. The wine cooler that was a, such a big spot. Now before we went on air, I said someone I can't remember who, so I don't want to attribute a name to it. Said like, "Well, Cactus Jack talking about a non gimmicked wine cooler bottle is an expose because you're assuming you're letting people know that most bottles are gimmicked." I would say anything that makes people believe in what they saw is a, was a positive thing. So if the average fan's belief is somewhere around non-fan, around zero, the zero percent is what's taking is is real. Anything that involves reality and takes that up, and if you can suspend, well, it can go the other way. You know, we saw Jericho hit Punk years ago on Raw, and it like crumbled in his hand before yeah. he hit it. I mean, and, and I think it happened on Nitro with. Uh, Russo and Flair or something like that. It was like a Statue of Liberty, but it crumbled before it hit yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Versus when, when you guys were doing it, when you did and it. Especially, you know, when it's the it's the bottle that's in the can that we're using. When Eddie takes it and dumps it out, a gimmick bottle is probably going to break or crack. And then Eddie is able to take that bottle, and he just, this is where the moment comes. He looks at it and it's like this moment of the, I think he points to it and he registers with the crowd he's got the facial expression so he builds the anticipation yes. up so much that when I come out of there and there's a great photo uh taken of that moment of impact and just Eddie's bleeding heavily and that bottle just boom and explodes and goes everywhere I think the fact that people knew it was re- they knew already, I think, that it had to be real, or they were guessing it was more likely to be real because of the wear and tear it had been through during the course of the match. And here it comes, boom. It was, yeah, it was really a dramatic way to bring about the ending of that match. Years later, you would do a bottle thing in ECW <laughs> that I just discovered in the last year or so. The bottle that, that would might break. be the most brutal thing I've seen. On Twitter in a long, long time. <laughs> I guess we should. I don't think we're betraying any trade secrets. It's out there. I've heard people talk about it on interviews before. The secret, if you can't get sugar glass, is to bake the glass. And it's empty. You put it in the oven, and now it's going to be a little more brittle, and it's more likely to break. You clearly did not subscribe to that theory. No, I, I, I look. I use bottles uh, four or five times during promos to break, and I've probably been hit uh, four or five times over the head. This was a case where Sabu and I are going all over the building in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking of my son Dewey, who at that time is not quite three, and he's woken up from his nap as. <laughs> Sabu's, he, I can't remember who's played music played first. And I'm like, this can't be happening. I remember like just handing him off to 911. It's, ah, oh, just, just take, just take care of him, you know? You wake up and he's in a pile of uh, wrestling robes and stuff and he just doesn't see dad and he went crazy. Well, as he should, you know? So now I go and Sabu ends up impaling himself on the 
guardrail. He hits the moon, does the moonsault, I think, from the second rope. May have been from the turnbuckles. And uh, I felt like an outfielder trying to catch him. It was like, this one's over my head. Like, uh, he was up here, you know. Like, we're, we're trying to make the block here. He's up here, and he sailed over my head. He lands on that uh, guardrail, and he's going, give me time, give me time. You know, just he needs some time to uh, recover. Recover. And from there, we end up having a really good, really good match. And as we're brawling, I see a, a garbage can with a bottle. I think it's a beer bottle. They use the bottle, so it's not gimmicked in any way. Who so comes in? And just that sound of like thunk. And now we've already introduced it, right? We've got to use it again, right? And it's it's a unique. I think a, we're a useful study. An audience participation and that the first time they're so into it, you know, but then when they don't get the uh, explosion, ooh, second by the fifth time, it's almost like they didn't want to see it anymore. You're, yeah, you're yeah, hurting a guy, yeah, for hurting real, a guy for real, and then finally that fifth time it exploded. There's some danger to Sabu too, you know. I mean, oh yeah, something. could have destroyed his hands. Um, are you guys able to communicate, or do you, is it just nonverbal? Like you know, keep going. I think I said, you know. I think he he said Again? to stop. Yeah, like I, I I think he was calling for an ethical ending to that match, and was, but no, we got to do it. And now there, I, I'm not bleeding, but I've got lumps, five lumps on my head. You look like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, after. yeah, yeah. got the goose eggs. And now do Does we, your son even recognize he's you? He's calmed down. Yeah. And he asked me uh, if I won. No, I didn't win, but it was a good match. And then we drove. It was about a three-hour drive to my parents' house. So over the river and through the woods. My favorite part of that whole story is not the bottle piece. It's, so then I just hand him to 911. (laughs) 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 Don't choke slam my baby, sir. I'll be back shortly. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. From your book, uh, talking about this match, uh, and what a spectacle this was. Three matches in a single night. Uh, I actually felt like I was in the best shape of my career as I pulled into the Civic Center. What followed were 40 minutes of what Eddie Gilbert actually called the best matches of his life. Coming from Eddie, that was high praise, as he was one of the most talented and hardest-working guys in the business before his untimely death three years later in Puerto Rico. That is gigantic praise, that he thought those were the best matches of his career. And at this point, he's probably given you some of the best matches of your career, too. I think it's important to say that as great as Eddie was in the ring, his real calling was... Creative. Creative. And that's where I think his his heart was. He loved to tell those stories. And if Eddie had lived, I believe he would have been a major force uh, with either WWE or uh, with WCW. Uh, you know, who, he might be in AEW by now, but Eddie was only a handful of years older than me, I believe, right? He was maybe 31 or 32. Not an old man. Yeah. And uh, clearly his best years, uh, we, you know, as a guiding force, and he was a guy that liked projects. You know, I'm going to take this guy, I'm going to nurture this guy. And to then to make them believe in themselves, that's a big deal. And sometimes that's the difference between being a good worker and a worker who clicks and uh, goes on to be a big draw and a huge star. 
Uh, Eddie had that type of ability. And I'm so glad. Had it not been for those the, those initial shows with Danucci in uh, 86 and 87, you know, where I met Eddie and Missy. Missy, I think we talked in a previous episode. Missy and Medusa. Eddie was quite the salesman. <laughs> um a lot of our younger fans uh, and listeners who just are familiar with your WWF career, maybe they probably don't know the story of Eddie. And I'm glad that we got to share some of that because I can't help but wonder with all that ECW became, oh, how man. important he would have been with all of that. And obviously all the craziness of the Monday night wars, or even now with AEW and WWE and impact. I mean, what a mind he would have been behind the scenes for oh, somebody, man. Hey, I want to tell you one of my big regrets was that I did not participate in one of the Eddie, Mar- Eddie Gilbert memorial shows because at that time I was an ECW guy. Uh, that was it, it was an NWA show. I did go to the luncheon that day, and I know the family appreciated that. But man, you know, I understood the reasons why I wasn't supposed to do it. But that's where I wish I'd just spoken up and said, listen, I got, I, I have to do it. You know, I have to do it. And I didn't. So I wish I had. I did the, the halfway thing. I went to the luncheon. Um, so to the Gilbert family, especially Doug, sorry I wasn't there. I should have been. Um, but I hope in particular that Doug has enjoyed listening to this because Eddie was his uh, older brother. He uh, obviously idolized his brother. And, you know, there's so many people whose careers he touched yeah. with his wisdom. You know, talk about the top, Sting. I don't think... Sting, he helped get Sting going, man. Yeah, I don't know if Sting would have been in the equation. He uh, might not have had the chance to work it, with Flair. Yeah, if it wasn't he for might Gilbert. not have, have had Eddie not brought out the best in Sting before that. Uh, so there were so many guys that he was instrumental in. Rick Steiner, he was really instrumental in Rick Steiner. Um so he, yeah, Eddie was great. He was a great idea guy. He was a great show. He was an old school wrestler who was a great showman, uh, a great brawler, but could be the consummate technician and just a guy who could do it all and who played way above his weight. So that when I was working with Eddie, I was probably about 270. Eddie was probably about 210, but he was so good. It was good. believable. Unbelievable. He was so good as a heel. He was a great, great heel. And I'm just so glad that uh, our paths crossed. Uh, one of the more famous stories in, in, in wrestling for a long time was how he was the guy steering the ship for ECW. And then one day, something in Eddie's life changed, and Paul Heyman was the guy. Yeah. Um, do you know what changed? I don't. I don't know. It seems like it's one of wrestling's more better-kept secrets. But unfortunately, uh, we lost him way, way too early down in Puerto Rico. And it's just, uh, we say that a lot about wrestling. And I had seen Eddie just a few months before that. I went to Puerto Rico. I always said I wouldn't because of what happened to Brody. But I did go when Eddie and Dutch were booking Puerto Rico. I worked with uh, Glenn Jacobs there for a couple of nights. Um, was he Unibom there, or what was he doing? There? I think he was Unibom there. Yeah. I th- well, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Don't, okay. Don't quote me on that. But clearly, he had a world of talent and a great look, and he was going play. He was going to be uh, an evil dentist. I look at that guy. That's an evil dentist. Sure, player. of course. Um, but I remember hanging out with Eddie after the show, and uh, and I wasn't much of a drinker, and I'm still not. So that two drinks get me really 
sentimental. And it was just really cool to spend that time with Eddie, uh, hanging out, reminiscing about what we had done and what we were going to do. And then I believe he was gone within a few months of that night. That's a shame, man. I uh, wish we could end on a happier note about Eddie because it feels like... uh, he made quite an impression on your career yeah. and so many others. Well, the happy note would be if if we could encourage people who are listening to check out some of those matches. Absolutely. And especially if it's, I don't know where you find uh, the old uh, Mid-South tapes, the episodic television. It's just a treasure trove of great, of great stuff, you know, because it was... A rugged area. You had to. You had to be good because you were trying to. You were trying to capitalize on a smaller number of fans. That was the way it explained to me that uh, the smaller the cities, the more realistic the action had to be because you were counting on those people to come back again. It wasn't like the Northeast where you know. I mean, that was that's what I heard. I've never been proven scientifically, but I'd heard that you didn't have to work as snug. Uh, in the old WWF territory mm-hmm. because there were so many people to pick from. But you get into, like, your when your key cities are, you know, like Tulsa, like uh, oil towns, like, you had to capitalize. You had to get those guys coming back. And they believed to the point where I was told, like, uh, you didn't want to be in a spot show with Ricky Morton and getting a lot of heat because you'd be fighting your way out of that building. Because he know. would look to the crowd and, look and say, to that Help crowd, me. And you would have the heels literally begging him, please, <laughs> please don't, please don't sell so much. You know, my life's in the hanging in the balance. So I, I would say that that would be the happy note if I knew that some people were gonna, going to pursue Eddie Gilbert stuff yes. on, a, on a larger basis, look at the old... Uh, 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 Mid-South, the new WF stuff. Uh, it was really a, a great territory. Well, we know you're going to wind up going back to WCW and have a great run. Uh, maybe it wasn't exactly what you were hoping for, but it was, it you was, were on the right was, track. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I, the first year and a half especially just could not have asked for more. Couldn't have asked for more an opponent from Sting, guys like uh, Corny and Sullivan who really were behind me. Uh, and Jim Ross calling the matches. Like, it was uh, keeping me... Uh, well, it was a little different scenario from 1990 where he was keeping me alive even when I was losing matches, but uh, really helping build that character. Uh, that was It was a great time for me. What about uh, Eddie? Sort of what if? You know, he doesn't wind up going back to WCW. What if he had? Do you think it would have changed? He was really concerned that if he went back that they were going to dilute what he and I had done. I remember him telling me that's why he didn't show up. I mean, I think on the first, he thought they were going to put us together in that same feud, water it down, homogenize it to the point where it was barely recognizable because we couldn't do that feud under the... Not on WCW TV. Not the way they did it that way at that time. Um, You know, it's it's, on one hand, he would have gone around to any of the available places to work and uh, made a difference but I think he would have been a WWF guy a WCW guy and that he'd still be making a major impact to this day 
Well, we hope we've made an impact for some younger fans who decided to check out some Eddie Gilbert matches. And Quarterback uh, Circle was brought to you by Mr. In Your House That's himself. Right. And you're making an impact on Cameo these days. Oh, yeah. It's our we favorite part of the show. Past the uh, 4,000 reviews. It's which a big is deal. Really something. And we're going to now look at one of those uh, videos. And, and by the way, you, as you're watching this, if you go to the website, not the app, but if you go to yeah. the website and you use the promo code, Foley with a capital F twenty. Yep, you're going to get a special discount at cameo.com forward slash McFoley. So one of the most reviewed and a great deal. And here's what you're going to be getting: this sort of presentation, <laughs> this sort of action. Two frescas deep. We're partying in here, man. <laughs> and now I always draw the comparison with Bret Hart, right? Uh, sure. Hey, Bret Hart's not writing songs like this. But here's the strange thing, Conrad: is that I'm not dismissing Bret Hart because my hope is that. On Cameo, I will be the Bret Hart of Cameo. The best there is. The best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. So, Bret, you're only making me better. And now let me see if I can find... I want to mention, too, uh, you will allow people to request songs, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you've seen me now. Uh, we've probably done eight eight or nine different songs, yeah. a different one. Mm -hmm. uh, last week was, uh, it turned Oh Christmas Tree into Oh Emily. Yeah. Oh Emily, because I'd done that similar for Britney Spears way back in the day. Uh, and so people have a favorite song. And now I can't be doing, uh, you know, uh, Cardi B's, you know, signature. T I, I can't Why really. Why not? Well, it's got some things in there uh, that are. You can my, switch it up. I could, you think I could switch it up? Oh, I know. Rewrite you it? You know what? Let me do that. I'm going to work on that this week and come back to you on the next episode with, if not the next one, then the one after that, with a takeoff on, uh, is it WAP? Is yeah. That, okay, I'll do that. Okay, and I think she'd like that. She's a, she's a wrestling fan. She comes on from time to time, and she uh, comments on the wrestling. Did you know that? How about that? Yeah, no, yeah. That. All right, okay. So now we have a birthday uh, for Brandon. Let me see. Uh, we're going to do this as a dude love. This I heard a rumor about him the other day. What is it? Is it true that he's the most happening cat in all the land? Hippest cat. Oh, Hippest cat at all. Could he be happening too, though? He is because he's been, when it, uh, you know what? He'll probably explain this because uh, Brandon is turning 40. So let dude explain this Got to it. you. All right. He'll explain it uh, while we go on. All right. Okay. Hello, Brandon. Uh, this is the hardcore legend Mick Foley. You're looking a little worse for the wear in case you were expecting that uh, classic, like, mid to late 90s cactus jacket. There's a little age around the eyes. Uh, the hair is no longer cascading down below the shoulders, uh, but I can prove my identity. Uh, there we go. There's one ear. There's the other one. Lost that bad boy almost 20, over 28 years ago, just past the anniversary uh, a couple of months ago, and I understand that you have a birthday coming up on April 12th. I know that because Eric has seen fit. Yeah, he was thinking to himself, wow, what better way to celebrate Brandon's birthday than with a personal video message from his all-time favorite wrestler. And it turns out The Rock's not in cameo, so he settled for me, but I'm okay with that. I don't need to be number one or even in the top ten. As long as I'm putting a smile on your face, that's all that I care about, especially if I can take you back to the way you felt 
98 or 1999 at the Breslin Center there in East Lansing, Michigan, when we introduced Mr. Sacco to the world. That's where I visited Mr. McMahon. I'm not sure if that's the exact date uh, that uh, Brandon and Eric are talking about, but that is the birthplace of Mr. Sacco. And now turning 40, living in Chicago, you love hockey and baseball. You're a huge fan, and uh, you also let Eric... Uh, borrow my autobiography, have a nice day, thereby depriving me of the royalty that I would have received many years ago. But I'm going to try to forgive that, and I'm going to try to put on a uh, happy face, especially as I introduce to you the man who is the hippest cat in all the land. Please say hello to Dude Love. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. My man, my main man. Do not adjust the thine eyeballs. They're not playing tricks on you. This is, in fact, Jack. Dude Love, the hippest cat in the land. And now I know, Brandon, you are celebrating the big 4-0. I want you to know, my brother from another mother, that this is no longer the portal into advanced age. Why, this hip cat knows for a fact, ow, that I was every bit as happening at Nifty 50 as I was at Flirty 30. There you go, Conrad, answering that question. I got Conrad Thompson here, my main man, Grillo, behind the camera, churning out the best darn podcast in podcasting territory. History, Daddy. And now, speaking of history, this is the first time we play this song because I want you to have the type of birthday you deserve. I am talking about your birthday bash. Oh, yeah. Can you feel it? Can you feel it deep down in your bones? I'm talking about your birthday bash. It's a very special day. Everyone's dancing groovily in the dude's impassioned way. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about your birthday bash. It's a happening time of year. Listening to the dude sing this tune, all your blues are gonna disappear. Bye bye. You will get this kooky kind of feeling when you hear Cactus Jack say, I'm not begging, but save some cake for the hardcore legend talking about your birthday bash. I hope your big day's nice. Everyone's eating birthday cake, but save the dude a slice sax solo. Dude Love here sending you birthday greetings of peace, owl, love, and understanding the heartfelt hope that this video, this birthday will be the hippest, the grooviest, the downright mellowest of them all. Ow, have mercy. Wow, dude, oh, whoa, whoa, pay no attention to that man. Whoa, what the heck happened here? No, I don't want you hitting me with that. F, no, no, it's not fake. It's three different guys, okay. All right, listen, uh, Brandon, I'm so sorry this ended on a sour note. We try to bring it home in style, but you are a part of the Foley's pod <laughs> podcast. Brought to you, uh, Conrad Thompson, Grillo, and Mr. In Your House, because no one came through when it mattered less than me. Yeah, thank you so much for being a fan, and may all your days be nice. Yeah, 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 I'm running out of things to say. There we go. Well, there you go, boys and girls. Check it out. Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Be sure to use that promo code 
Foley 20, yeah. capital F and Foley, going to get a special deal. It's good for everything, man. Birthdays, anniversaries, just a little pick-me-up. Uh, just it? a pick-me-up. I, uh, I don't know if we got into this. Uh, I've ordered four for myself, and I've been extremely happy on three occasions. A little disappointed on one occasion, but I'm glad I had that uh, experience because now I know how I don't want people to feel. Like, oh, I expect a little more. And so I try to give a little more. Try to do it. You know, I think we've already given Janice from Friends oh, yeah. uh, her props because that's the way she made She gave me a great video. I felt so elated. And then that led to me binging Friends in a way that I never would have otherwise. That's so awesome. We hope that when I uh, do a video that it, you know, it makes you feel good, not just for that those three or four minutes, but for the entire day. And we hope that you guys go binge some Eddie Gilbert today. And uh, we'll be back next week. What a show we've got next week, Mick. We're talking about the JR interviews from 1997. Ooh, wow. We'll even carry it through King of the Ring 1997. Hunter finally gets his moment, crushes that scepter over your head. A lot of moving parts. Brett and Sean are in a backstage fight. We'll talk about that and a lot more. But it's all about the interviews with JR. That's got to be one of the most important moments in your entire career, right? Oh, yeah. I. I that was that was uh, just a little tease. I believe it was that interview that turned Mr. McMahon into a fan. And that he saw me as somebody he could help, you know, help build the company around. You know, one of those pillars. Not saying I was ever the guy, but I was one of the guys. You were up there. Yeah, I was up there. I was one of those pillars. Maybe the least impressive of the pillars, but I was still one of the pillars. We're going to talk about all that and a lot more next week right here on Folius Pod. Sounds good. Sounds good.